Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about urinary incontinence after prostate surgery. Also, understanding the importance of mental health using emotional literacy and Canada's new nationwide suicide line, 988, and the surprising impact stress has on you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. As I mentioned, leaking urine is never the sexiest subject ever, but it affects many, many people, men and women alike. Oftentimes, we associate urinary incontinence with women because all of the marketing is pink, but it can happen to men just as much, especially overactive bladder. And this happens often after post-prostatectomy, and that refers to the loss of bladder control, and it is the result of the surgical removal of the prostate gland. Oftentimes it's for prostate cancer. The prostate is a small walnut shaped gland. It's below the bladder and in front of the rectum and it plays a role in the production of semen. But because there's a super highway of nerves in that area, urinary incontinence is a potential side effect of the prostatectomy because it's so close to the prostate. Uh, it's so close The prostate is so close to the urinary sphincter and the nerves that control bladder function. And when doctors are doing surgery, they actually, it's very difficult to get those millions of nerves, even though they tried to do nerve sparing surgery um, to prevent things like urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. But we're going to be talking in particular about stress urinary incontinence and urge urinary incontinence and what you can do about that. And so joining me on the line to talk about that all the way from Louisiana is Marsha Gauthier. She's founder of Pure Balance, a wellness company dedicated to promotion, holistic health, and well-being. She's a registered nurse. Her focus is on population health. And she's also a board-certified urology nurse who is deeply passionate about helping individuals live their best lives and strive to make a positive impact on their overall health and happiness. And she's here to talk to me, talk with me and you about urinary incontinence. Good evening, Marsha. Hey, good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. It's rare that I can get another nurse, let alone one that is board certified in this area, to talk to me about urinary incontinence, leakage of urine, stress urinary incontinence, overactive bladder, in part because so few nurses do this kind of work, and yet it impacts millions and millions of people the world over, the globe over. It's a tremendously negative uh, occurrence, especially after somebody who, after somebody has experienced a prostatectomy. And they might be thinking, "Yay, I have, you know, I'm cured of cancer." but now I'm left with this debilitating condition, urinary incontinence. And you've worked in this field for a number of years, correct? Absolutely. Um, urology was one of the first um, career choices I did as a nurse. And I began to um, you know, um, become involved with uh, men who had um, incontinence um, after surgery um, and kind of the path that they had to follow. Um, you know, post being, um, post-surgical, I'm sorry. Exactly. And, you know, I think even though men are told by the urologist, the surgeon, that they may experience leakage of urine or erectile dysfunction, which we're not talking about right now. We'll talk about that later, um, at another time. Um, they can't, you know, they're, they're so happy to be having the surgery to rid themselves of the cancer that they think, oh, I won't get urinary incontinence or it won't bother me that much, but it's actually tremendously bothering it can, for people. And did you find that with um, men in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Within the practice, as well as um, my own father, um, I think it's very important in being seeing the urologist before having the radical prostatectomy is the question of, you know, quality of life. A lot of people um, can be very young, in whenever they have a diagnosis of prostate cancer and they're about ready to get the surgery performed, it is important to realize that incontinence may really impact the rest of your life. So having that conversation um, preoperatively is very, very important. And being able to understand how you're going to overcome it when it does happen. And that's 
you know, with the use of exercises and, you know, um, different modalities that they have today. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about stress urinary incontinence. What exactly is stress urinary incontinence? So stress urinary incontinence occurs when the structures in the urinary system aren't strong enough to support the the body whenever um, it's under that pressure. And so a lot of it happens whenever you are a female and you get, you know, the pressure on uh, the anatomical places um, and they have, um, you know, a cough or, you know, a sneeze. And then that's when urine sprays out. And that is what causes many women to hurry and cross their legs or, you know, do some an action like that in trying to serve as support. That is literally what they're doing is trying mm-hmm. to survive provide support. It happens a lot with women because of childbirth, but um, that is exactly what's happening is that it's um, the structures in the urinary system aren't strong enough. And and that is, um, it occurs to men as well. Like we we know that we often associate leakage of urine with women, all the pink marketing, you know, women talk about it, but we don't really talk about male urinary incontinence, but men can get stress urinary incontinence post-operatively as well from activities that increase the intra-abdominal pressure, like you mentioned, sneezing, coughing, laughing, lifting objects. Um, so it can occur for them post-operatively also, correct? Yes. Yeah, so um, in I, I've done surgery um, many, many times assisting physicians um, during the procedure, and we are manipulating those tissues around there in efforts to remove the cancerous prostate. And so we are loosening those um, ligaments and tendons and the muscle around the um, bladder. So that is why it occurs. Again, we are loosening that tissue to get the prostate out. And so whenever they cough, sneeze, that's what happens. The Mm -hmm. urine comes out for the men postoperatively. And they have to do exercises and so forth to overcome that. Yes. And also men can experience things like urge urinary incontinence as well, or overactive bladder, which I like to say is frequency, urgency, nocturia, it's no fun. But tell, tell the listeners a little bit about urge incontinence. I find that urge incontinence happens quite often in regard to men for, because their bladder becomes more, um, distended over time because the prostate also can um, block the path of urine. And so that's not allowing you to to um, go to the bathroom as often. So that's why you have to, you know, go to the bathroom more often is because that it is overfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happens. And that's, you know, the difference in urgent continence is that is something that you cannot control. Stress incontinence happens because the structures are loose. But um, on the other hand, urge incontinence happens when um, it's almost like a people call it a bladder spasm. And, oh, my God, the, you know, a lot of urine came out and I didn't control it. It was out of my control. So mm-hmm. to me, that is one of the easiest ways to explain that to people. Exactly. And it can result from damage to the nerves that regulate bladder function during prostate surgery as well. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And another um, thing that I have seen during practice is that um, if you get radiation to the pelvic area, Mm -hmm. then that causes irritation to the bladder as well as the rectum. So you can see some of that as well. So in treatment of prostate cancer, um, you see a lot of effects to the bladder because of um, the anatomical uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's just that the other thing I want to mention here, because this often goes unsaid, especially if I see it on social media and there are non-medical people that are, you know, trying to capitalize on people who are leaking urine and and they're telling people that, you know, pelvic floor muscle exercises are the, you know, is what's going to help you. It doesn't necessarily help everybody. um, But also diagnosis, what I really want to say is diagnosis is key. If you are having 
stress incontinence, for example, but you haven't been diagnosed properly and somebody gives you treatment for urge incontinence, it's not necessarily going to work. So would you agree with me on that, that diagnosis is very important? Yes, actually, you know, having the wrong diagnosis can really hurt you and cause more problems with the urinary system. So it is clearly two different things. um, And literally, you can make yourself worse. So having a urologist on board or a specialized nurse in um, urology um, or someone in physical therapy who can work on with you in regard to, um, you know, overcoming some of that, those things. Um, but having a correct diagnosis is 100% on board. Um, and I have seen people go in thinking that, oh, I, I just pee on myself and it's just because I had a baby. And then all of a sudden they come out and it's a whole nother diagnosis with a whole new um, uh, kind of unrelated uh, diagnosis, yep. like a whole new, like, uh, MS or so forth. So it can be linked to a lot of things, um, in the, in the body itself. Joining me on the line, if you're just joining the program is Marsha Gauthier from Louisiana. She's the founder of Pure Balance, a wellness company dedicated to promotion of holistic health and well-being. And she's a registered nurse. Her focus is on public on population health. She's a board certified urology nurse, deeply passionate about helping you live your best life and strive to make a positive impact on your overall health and happiness. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Marsha. Thank you so much. I am very blessed to be on for today. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet of you. And if you have any questions out there, 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. I don't expect the phones to be ringing off the hook because I understand this is an embarrassing condition. It can lead to isolation and depression. It increases your laundry needs. It's the number one reason for admission to long-term care facilities. So I understand, but there are things that you can do. And that's why I brought Marsha on the program to talk about that. Marsha, what are the things that people can do um, to treat? We don't, we have about five minutes left or not even so, but we don't have much time. But anyway, what are some of the treatments here? So um, for some of the treatments for, um, if there are uh, slings, uh, actually um, a tape kind of that is um, put under the urethra to give that support when you have stress incontinence because um, of how stress incontinence occurs. It's the loss of support. So there's, you know, different procedures that can be done by urologists um, to, pro- to provide that. Mm-hmm. And that um, has come about and it's really advanced in the last few years as well. And it, and it is a treatment option if you're experiencing stress urinary incontinence. But it's important to get that right diagnosis. Does your dynamic testing, and, and can you explain what that is and how that may help to confirm the diagnosis of stress urinary incontinence in men? Yes. So um, I always compare a urodynamic test to, um, to like having an EKG on your heart. Well, this is where you put a small catheter um, into the bladder as well as um, usually into the rectum and then you, we see, we fill your bladder up, and then we see how your bladder reacts to water being put in. So we fill up the bladder, and then the bladder's a muscle. So as your bladder fills, the um, it, there's recording, and it is telling us what is happening um, with the bladder itself. And so during the procedure, we will ask you to cough or bear down or valsalva. And we're watching to see um, what those results were um, on the reading. And so we can get so much knowledge. And that's how we actually get to the correct diagnosis, is to understand what's happening with the bladder itself. Absolutely. And um, the other thing is, so you're differentiating between stress urinary incontinence and something like overactive bladder or urge incontinence which have two entirely different treatments, but sometimes you can have both. So what is the treatment for urge incontinence or overactive bladder? So a lot of times um, they'll choose um, medications to, um, to treat that, but they um, will always ask you whether you have like glaucoma 
there's, uh, you know, some uh, contraindications. So um, a lot of that is uh, medication-related um, in order, you know, to help control the um, involuntary um, parts of that disease process. Mm-hmm. Those contractions that the bladder that are happening yes. within the bladder that can be idiopathic. What about bladder retraining? I'm not a big one for medication on this one because I feel like um, the side effects where, you know, some of those um, anticholinergics cross the blood brain barrier, right. they can lead to short term memory loss. So I just in about 30 seconds, um, bladder retraining. Can you explain that, please? Yeah, um, uh, some places have nurses or therapy pl- uh, groups that focus on um, pelvic um, kind of restructuring or um, t- teaching the bladder how to contract again and mm-hmm. hold and then, you know, um, to strengthen up that, that area of the body. Excellent. Marsha, thank you so much. I really wish we had more time to talk about this, but I'll definitely bring you back and we'll dive in a little bit deeper. Really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mental health, something that we don't talk about, is important at every stage of life from childhood and adolescence through adulthood. Over the course of your life, if you experience mental health problems, it can affect your your thinking, your mood how you handle stress, how you relate to others, and what choices that you make. Mental health includes emotional, psychological, and social well-being, and it's critically important. Joining me on the line to talk about this and actually share her own personal story is Dr. Shahana Alibai. She's a professional speaker and family physician who empowers individuals and organizations to understand mental health's importance. Using emotional literacy, she provides clarity for personal and organizational well-being. And she's here on the line with me, and she's going to share her own story. Good evening, Dr. Shahana Ali Bai. Good evening. Good evening. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, I'm delighted to have you here and talking about such an important subject, mental health. There's, it's still stigmatized. People are still embarrassed, ashamed, feel that they're weak, feel there's something wrong with them, feel that no one else has experienced this, and none of which is true. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a a great a great saying, or even a psychological term that we call the beautiful mess effect. And it's this idea where people who are considered competent, if they were to share a vulnerability, if they were to share a mistake, if they were to share, you know, something that was real from their personal story, you know, I think a lot of us might feel like people wouldn't like us as much. And the truth of the matter is that people actually like you more. So this paradoxical way of thinking that actually by being who we really are authentically, it creates a connection that so many of us crave. And yet social media, for one, has taught us to put on only a facet of ourselves, only the most beautiful part of ourselves. And this curated version is actually causing us to become more disconnected than ever before. Uh, of course it is. You make such a great point about, you know, being vulnerable with somebody. It, it does actually make them like you more. I mean, it's hard to um, see all these perfect people, especially online, <laughs> um, yeah, where we yeah. see, you know, p- I mean, oftentimes I'll see people that I know and I know that they've struggled and they, I know that they have issues, but all of the photos are filtered uh, everything looks amazing. They happen to find their way to the bow of a yacht <laughs> and yeah, sipping yeah, champagne <laughs> somehow. I don't know why I can't get there. <laughs> right, exactly. Somehow the yacht is always a part of this too. But, you know, and that was, I think, quite liberating for me. Like when I gave the TEDx talk on emotional literacy, you know, now in 2019, a few years ago, one of the things I said on stage to the audience there was that I was a hypocrite. And I was, because up until that point, I was a professional treating mental health, and I was going to advocate and support. And if that meant referring you for counseling or prescriptions or both, whatever the case might be, but when it came to my own mental health, the thought process that I had was that I was too good for it, that this was a you condition, but it would never, could never, should never be a me condition. And all of that came to a grinding halt after the birth of my first son. This was now eight years ago. 
And, you know, I realized I was in the depth of not just postpartum anxiety and depression, but postpartum OCD, which I didn't have the courage to say those words um, during the TEDx talk. Um, anxiety and depression were, of course, part of the story, but not the full story. And it came out later through podcasts and whatnot, too. But actually admitting that on stage and realizing that no amount of privilege, no amount of education, and no amount of money, bolstering, whatever you want to call it, can actually protect you from this as well. So I think for me, coming head to head, face to face with this, hopefully has made me, you know, a better advocate for my patients today. Uh, of course. And I mean, I think anytime you have the patient experience yourself, you yeah. can relate to the patient so much better. And, and I often hear in my clinical practice, uh, patients will say, have you ever seen this before? They will have so mm. much embarrassment and shame about whether it's desire discrepancy in their marriage or relationship, yes. or if they're, if they're leaking urine, or if they have vaginal yes. health issues, or if they have erection function issues, a lot of sexual health issues come yes. with shame and embarrassment and, and they can lead to anxiety and depression. And they, they just are overwhelmed with this, but it always gives them comfort. Not that they want other people to suffer and we don't want others, others to suffer, mm-hmm but it gives them comfort knowing they are not alone on the island because that also promotes that shame and that stigma. If you're, you're so right. And I always talk about the nanosecond, the nanosecond when the patient is actually going to speak whatever truth there is. And there is that moment where the provider, whoever you happen to be, can lean forward, can lean in or microscopically lean away And it doesn't Mm -hmm. even need to be a physical movement. You can see it in their gesture. You can see it in all the nonverbal cues. And even actually, forget a provider. We do this with the people around us. I'll never forget the first time I chose to actually share, you know, my authentic story outside of telling, you know, my very close family and my husband, for example. I told a colleague, I didn't even tell, you know, a good, good friend of mine because a colleague was far enough that I could tell my truth, but if things didn't go well, there was still some separation there. And the words that she said to me were the words I carry in my heart to this day. She said, me too. And it wasn't that she had suffered from exactly the same thing. It was that she had her own story, you know? Of course. And, and I think we all have our own story. Yeah. And, and if we don't, then we know somebody, we care about somebody, we, we love somebody who has that story. We've supported somebody through that yeah. journey. And, and that journey can just be so, <coughs> so difficult. Um, and, and so you, it took you some time even. Here you are, an educated, professional woman giving a TEDx talk and delivering this information to people and yet it happens to you. What was your journey like after you came to that realization? You know, I think I was in, I was in utter denial for so long. And if you think about the way, we all have ways that we cope with how, whatever the world throws at us. And with, you know, with medical school and residency, there was no time to stop. There was no time to think. There was no time to be in the present moment. And fast forward to the postpartum period, you know, obviously you've got many sleepless nights to do exactly that, right? Uh-huh. To kind of come face to face. And the other piece is too, the postpartum period, I always joke is the most fertile period because whatever you have pushed down deep and suppressed, if you think about it, most of us do one of three things with our emotions. We suppress them way down deep. We deny that we even have them in the first place or we blame. It's your fault. You're the reason why this is not happening to me. And I always declare that I'm the world's best suppressor. And that's exactly what I did. And, and everything really came to a head, you know, with trying to reconcile the panic attacks, trying to figure out these things that I could list, you know, the DSM-5 criteria, which is a psychiatric manual of how psychiatrists, psychologists, physicians come to a diagnosis. But it was so ironic that I couldn't recognize that in myself. It was actually easier to see it in someone else. But once again, it came from that mindset of, like, I'm just putting a label on it, of being too good, of thinking that I was too good. I hate admitting that, but that was the truth. And I think if more of us actually started to to say that, because that's where the fallacy of mental health comes from. And many of us have a, I like to call it the Goldilocks phenomenon of mental health. It's almost as if 
we're waiting for things to be to be just right, as if the porridge has to be, if it's too hot, it's not good. If it's too cold, it's not good. It, it has to be just, just right. And for me, when it came time, when I was going through that really, really difficult phase, it was like someone just threw the bowl of porridge and everything had collapsed on the floor. So none of my coping mechanisms were working anymore. And it, I, I'm embarrassed to say that it took me over a year, over a year to, to talk to the anonymous physician helpline, to and I remember they had told me they said you know you're going to have to probably see a reproductive psychiatrist you're probably going to need to start counseling start medication and my words to the doctor on the other end were you know what I feel a lot better after this chat thanks <laughs> I wanted to hang up and they were like well not so fast <laughs> so it was that was the start that was the start of the journey Right. You said so much there and it was awesome. But two critical things that you said was the denial piece. And and I often say denial is a drug. We don't want to think anything's wrong with us. And that was the other thing that you said. You know, I don't know if people realize that they think they can be, and and myself included, everybody above it. And, Mm. you know, there's this association of weakness with mental illness and, and mental yeah. health, if you are not strong, if you're not coping, if you're not doing it, if you're not doing a million things a day and, you know, everything's going swimmingly, you're not, you know, doing it right. Um, That's right. It's, uh, That's it's right. so um, enlightening, actually, to hear you share your story and to say those things that I think a lot of people have said to themselves, I'm above this, or they've judged other people. Let's be real here. They've (laughs) judged other people with mental illness. I mean, embarrassingly enough, like I, I mean, this is a a neighbor um, acquaintance was having difficulty with her child. And another neighbor said to her, go and speak to Maureen McGrath about it. I don't have any particular skills in this area. Go and speak to Mm -hmm. Maureen McGrath. She will not judge you. The neighborhood oh women would judge her for a child having mental health issues. And, oh you know, I, I remember just being struck by that. I mean, I wasn't able to help her just in the fact that she could share the story with somebody who maybe was associated with the medical field. That's it. That, well, exactly. And that right there, that's that nanosecond of leaning in, right? There's that nanosecond of going, you're safe. This is you know, I get it. I'm holding you. We all need when my when I was growing up, my dad used to sleep, you know, kind of rest in one of those hammocks. And I think about that a lot. And I think we've lost a lot of that hammock of our community because, you know, of course, post COVID and then so many factors that our hammock has only had more holes in it. You know, so uh-huh. we, we tend to do life alone. And that can be very, very, very dangerous when you also feel like you're and a great word is languishing as well, not the diagnosable, you know, anxiety and depression, but feeling that meh, ah, like I'm just not feeling a sense of fulfillment, which is a much better word for optimal mental health. Absolutely. And many people get to different stages of their life and they ask the question, you know, is this it? They, you know, they're just kind of like, you know, if the excitement is over, I mean, life is not a bowl of cherries every single day. You know, life is boring sometimes. (laughs) Life is dull sometimes. And then sometimes you get problems and sometimes it can be overwhelming. And and to think, and I really thank you so much for sharing your story, Um, to think that a physician, that this could happen to a physician. I mean, I I know a number of physicians who have shared their Mm -hmm. personal stories with me. Um, through working with them and, you know, through my career, but, um, and, you know, just that, so I knew, I know physicians struggle as well, but to have a physician actually share that story is, is incredibly powerful because oftentimes we elevate physicians or people in certain positions, uh, you know, of authority, if you will. Um, but thank you so much. And, and this is what has led to this work that you're doing now. Well, well, exactly. And that was so beautiful what you were just saying, too, because it's almost like the higher the pedestal, the, the greater the fall. And for me, it was I was elevating the, the pregnancy and, you know, having a child. And although, it's, of course, that is not a bowl of cherries either, which I learned the no. hard way, too. But, right, it's, that, it's that idea um, that we kind of do this to ourselves, between ourselves. And a lot of my work focuses, I work at the Foundry Abbotsford. The Foundry is a really a collaborative community for youth the ages of ages 12 to 24 to go. And in one place, they can find primary care. They can find mental health resources. They can find 
obviously counseling support, job support. Like it's just, it's a gamut of resources and also for parents too. And now there's not just one in Abbotsford, there's one, there's many scattered across BC, but at last count, Abbotsford was one of the busiest in all of BC. So with that being said, the being able to reflect and mirror and see my own experience, it doesn't really matter the age group. Anxiety is anxiety. Depression is depression. You can mm-hmm. you can speak that similar language or at least listen for it. Um, and I'll be honest, I got a bit tired of writing the same types of prescriptions, recommending the same kind of counseling. And I wanted to figure out, could there be some upstream approach? And the answer that I figured out was the answer I needed to know for myself. I created this thing called, it's very basic, it's just called the Optimal Health Pyramid. I like to call it a pyramid. It's just basically a triangle. And the foundation is what I call think better. So this idea of how do you train your brain? Because our brains are lying to us a lot of the time. You know, they're telling us, I always like to joke that your brain does three things that Instagram does really well, right? It critiques you, it compares you to others, and it cautions you. (laughs) So, um, you know, our brain was doing that long before social media ever was. Constantly, constantly, constantly putting you down, comparing yourself to others. It's got that negativity bias filter. My guest is Dr. Shahana Alibai. We are talking mental health. She has an awesome TEDx talk, the emotional literacy for better mental health. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Alibai. My pleasure. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, lovely to chat to you as well. And thank you so much. Um, So tell me um, a little bit about this program that you have um, created. So basically, like anything I think that comes in life, when you create something that you need yourself, you end up trying to find a way that could this help someone else. And for me, it came on the back of a napkin one day because, you know, I studied kinesiology you know, done a lot of work in nutrition, and I still found myself really falling short. And one of the reasons was even in, you know, our prior conversation was this idea that I never really understood what emotional literacy, what just emotional health in general was. There's many terms now that are floating around these days, all which are amazing, emotional adaptability and flexibility. But the key point being that we need to understand what are our emotions trying to tell us teach us because at the end of the day your emotions do two things they tell you to either approach or avoid something and I know for the greater part of my life I actually hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about emotions except to say that I didn't want to feel any except the good ones you know I don't know if that was like (laughs) you but it was I really really believe at some level that if I felt a quote-unquote negative emotion that meant I was a bad person I'm not sure if anybody kind of resonates with that idea but certainly that was um i think part of my dna or psyche for the longest period of time and now i think of emotions like a palette of paint paint with all the colors Mm -hmm. oh absolutely i can totally relate to that i much prefer the good emotions (laughs) to the (laughs) tough sad challenging difficult emotions i mean we want everything to go well i'm i'm a people pleaser at heart um, for sure. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser in recovery, I guess, mm-hmm. um, because that can lead to problems. You know, if everything yeah. is always hunky dory or you want it to be hunky dory and you don't want any difficulty or pain, you know, it, it almost brings it on more. Well, well, absolutely too. And what we had chatted a little bit about and what I want to give people is something tangible to actually think about. So obviously if you're not driving and you have a pen and paper, just simply draw a triangle out for me and on the draw uh, divided into three segments or areas um, with the line going horizontal and on the bottom you're going to put think better and connect deeply so this is the way that we understand just like we talked about what are your emotions trying to teach you what are your emotions trying to guide you towards because at the end of the day you probably wouldn't have an emotion to something unless you valued it even if you really have a strong negative emotions it means that you have a strong feeling towards it and use that. To, and that's what I do with the youth that I work with. Guide your value system and allow you to understand your value system. And then right above that is who are you connected with? There is, we don't have to look far to understand the science on, on just a sheer amount of loneliness. Let's look what the pandemic did to us. Look what even inflation is doing to us these days too. 
So what is the effect of loneliness on your health? And do you have at least three people that you can turn to in a time of need? And sadly, the truth is most of us don't, right? Mm-hmm. So that to me is, is the foundation. In the middle bulk of that pyramid, you're going to find what every single health podcast legitimately should talk about, which is rest smart, eating well, and moving more. Note that I don't say exercise. It's just moving your body a Mm -hmm. little bit more than you did the day before. Health is not a destination. It's just a series of decisions we make every day, starting with what you order in the Starbucks lineup (laughs) or the Tim Hortons lineup or whatever that happens to be. Absolutely. And and you call this um, triangle, you have a name for this? Yeah, it's called the Optimal Health Pyramid. You'll find it on my website. It's obviously all free, and it's just there to – I use it to rate myself and to as, as, a, as a guidepost for patients because I always like to say if you are rating 7 out of 10 in each of those categories, how you sleep, how you connect, how you understand your emotions, well, you might not be happy, but you sure as well should be content. And that's Wonderful. what we should be going for long term. Thank you so much. We're up against the clock, Dr. Shahana Alibai. Your website is? DrShahana.com. you got questions. She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in with me this evening. If you have any questions or comments, the number to call or text is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. If you're just joining the program for the very first time in 13 years, I'm Maureen McGrath, (laughs) registered nurse, uh, just in case. Um, And welcome, if you are. It's uh, lovely to be here with you. And... um, love doing the show and love having you tune in and I love all of your questions. And, and so in this hour, we're going to be talking about lots of different subjects. Um, we're going to be talking about adverse childhood events and, and stress. Also going to be talking about hypoglycemia and that's going to be in collaboration with my health quiz that we have every month. And um, also uh, going to be talking about, which is really upsetting for me, is that Canadians are not living as long as they have been in the past. Anyway, and that's directly tied to health, which is my passion. Uh, But first and foremost, uh, Canada announced uh, a call or text line 988 to help people suffering with mental health problems and suicide. Suicide is the leading cause of death. The suicide rates or death by suicide increased approximately 36% between the year 2000 and 2021. It, suicide does not, anyone is at risk because mental health is so important and people who are struggling with mental health, suicide can be a risk. It affects people of all ages, economic backgrounds, positions, uh, socioeconomic status. And suicide and suicide attempts cause serious emotional, physical, and economic impacts. And people who attempt suicide and survive may experience serious injuries that can have long-term effects on their health. On their health. They may also experience depression and other mental health concerns and, and regret and anxiety. Suicide and suicide attempts affect the health and well-being of friends, loved ones, co-workers, in the community. And when people die by suicide, their surviving family and friends may experience prolonged grief, shock, anger, and guilt. Joining me on the line to talk about this is a voice that you've heard before. She is also a family physician, and she's been a regular contributor to this program. Her website is holisticwellnessstrategies.com, and it's none other than Dr. Tommy Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Now, I know you do a lot of work in this area in terms of mental health and um, helping people perform at their optimal um, way, in, in an optimal way, um, whether it be per- personally or professionally, and you focus a lot um, in this way on mental health in your practice. So yeah. what, are your, what are your thoughts on this um, 988 hotline for mental health Canada. I think this is a great thing. This is something that has been lobbied for for many years, something that Canada needs and something that's already been in the U S 
for some time now. However, it doesn't take away from the fact that a lot of steps occur before we an individual gets to the point where suicide is a realistic option for them. And as somebody who's passionate about prevention and looking at what are the root causes, the factors contributing to somebody who wants to, who is feeling that this is their only option, I think we need to talk about that as well. Like this is definitely a win, but from the primary prevention standpoint, efforts need to go into the mental health system and really how we view mental health and what the root contributing factors are for adverse outcomes. You make a great point. Um, this is, uh, you know, much needed, modeled after the U.S., same number. Um, you know, it's a place where people can call or text um, and get help 24-7. It's free of charge. It's an option for people who are, you know, feeling suicidal, feeling that there's no way out, feeling that this is their only option. But you're right. We need to do so much more in terms of destigmatizing mental illness, preventing mental illness, promoting good mental health, taking the shame out of it, providing more services. Mental health is so related to physical health as well. Yes, 100%. We need to do all of that. And um, having those, what I call, uncomfortable but powerful questions asked um, and really exploring what is going on in the fabric of our society that is making us more prone to these mental health challenges because the answers are there. They just, it really requires one to have the courage and to let go of bias and stigma and have these conversations Absolutely. And I just wanted to read a text that just came in from Derek. And if you want to call or text me, the number to call or text is one 399 9898 If you have lost somebody to suicide or if you have suffered yourself. Um, but Derek writes in and says, I'm so glad there's another resource out there for suicide. With times being so tough right now, I know my mental health has suffered. I haven't been suicidal, but I have made attempts in the past. Even just free saying that, you know, um, even receiving this, I mean, I'm so grateful that Derek is, has shared that, uh, with the listeners and, and me, because it actually helps other people that, you know, they may have had these thoughts or may have attempted in the past, but there are other people who have suffered as well. And if you're suffering, um, you know, it is very important that you seek help. And now you can call 988 in Canada, call or text and get help immediately um, throughout the country. This is in, available in every single province and there's different services for different people, but you know, there's no weights and it's so important that you reach out. Thank you so much, Derek. If you have a comment about this, one 399 I don't know, Dr. Mitchell, if you've lost anybody to suicide, but I have. And, you know, I wasn't the closest person to this particular person, um, but good friends. And, you know, you have that sense that, you know, how could this happen and why didn't they reach out? And was this the yeah. only, this wasn't their only attempt either, yeah. um, which I was not aware of, but you know, it also leaves so many people in shock and anxiety and depression and loneliness. And, you know, with this feeling like I could have done something, but Definitely. could I? <laughs> you have all the above very common feelings. And, you know, what, came to mind was a patient I lost to suicide and just seeing, just looking back up until when that choice was made and the impact on the family and just, you know, asking yourself, what could you have done differently? What were the red flags? You know, it, it's a lot. It's, you carry that with you forever. Mm -hmm. And and then I, I say to myself, how could I have possibly, who do you think you are, Maureen, that you could have perhaps prevented this? And I yeah. wonder if other people are thinking that. I mean, and I'm intellectually, I know that I could not have, but perhaps prevention could have. Perhaps some strategies, if there wasn't shame about this particular person having attempted in the past, 
perhaps there could have been a reach out to other people um, to get some help and, you know, to understand that if you've attempted once, the risk is greater um, that you may attempt again. Yeah, there's there's so many barriers to individuals getting that help and being believed and taken seriously. Like people are more likely to believe, okay, you had a heart attack, you had a heart attack, you broke your leg, you're broken. But when it comes to mental health, something that people cannot see, there's not a blood test to say, oh, you're suicidal today. Um, it doesn't get the same response. And it's so unfortunate because... Mental health, mental fitness is the foundation of society. And more importantly, a lot of these mental health challenges we see stem from early childhood experiences and stressors, which isn't a popular topic, but it's the truth. If we all go back to the beginning and if we work on creating a healthier foundation for our kids and our families, we would see this mental health crisis dis- like significantly drop. Not to say that it's not going to happen, but we see dramatic improvements and it's it's so unfortunate. But you know, I'm thankful this is a win if this hotline saves lives. Because they're saying twelve Canadians every day commit suicide and then others attempt, right? And mm-hmm. I you know, some are left with debilitating scars and injuries because of suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. So we don't know the true numbers. But it's no, horrific. we don't. So you know, That's this right. is a win. This is a win, and mm-hmm. I'm thankful. Just like 911 was a win, is a win. This is exactly. a win, but let's keep on fighting. And and I think we have to do better in healthcare in terms of asking people about not only their sexual health, which I've been trying to advocate for that for a long yes. time, <laughs> but also their mental health. Mental health is related to sexual health, is related to cardiovascular health, is related yes. to physical health. They're Everything. all tied in together. But yes. I think I think that perhaps healthcare providers are afraid they're going to open up a can of worms if they ask somebody how their life is going. In fact, I had a friend of mine who's at GP and and they said to me, you know, Maureen, I've ordered x-rays and medications and referrals and counseling and this and that. What else can I do for this person? And I said, why don't you ask them how their life is? And it really stopped this physician <laughs> in their tracks. It, it was almost like, why would I do that? <laughs> like, How is that going to help? Like there was... This person was so befuddled, <laughs> I have to say. And yeah, it makes a big difference. You know, that's a, a conversation I have daily in my practice, and you'll be amazed what comes out of people's mind. But just having someone listen to them and acknowledge them is powerful. So, yes, it is everything. And How are you? Ex- exactly. Yeah. How are you doing? How are you really doing? You know, yeah, getting into it. How's your life real. going? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when people offload, when they share their story, you know, they release the pain. That's what yeah. I find in my clinical practice. And, you know, sometimes people can't tell me things and I'll say, it's important you even just sit in your bathroom and tell the wall, release yeah. it. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. She's a medical doctor and family physician. She focuses in on wellness and performance and she helps you to be empowered and reduce your burnout and overwhelm so that you can increase your productivity, not only in your personal life, but also in your work life. She's also a speaker, a trainer, and a writer. And her website is holisticwellnessstrategies.com. That's holisticwellnessstrategies.com. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. My pleasure, Marie. Now, um, interesting study about how stress impacts the brain. And in fact, it can strike harder than head injury. Correct. Stress, especially on a young developing brain, is profound. And again, that really highlights, you know, our conversation from the first segment about those early childhood experiences really impacting the way we respond to our stressors down the road as adults. And this is looking at root causes. And the root cause of life, society, healthy society is mental it's in our brains it's mental fitness mental health so yeah stress and, is profound. Mm-hmm. and those adverse childhood experiences are what we call aces uh they're they're potentially traumatic events that happen in childhood and it just makes so i mean it's hard to comprehend 
that children are experiencing traumatic events. But I would be naive not to believe that because children experience violence and abuse and growing up in families with mental health issues or substance use problems. And it's that toxic stress from ACEs that can change the brain. And so how does that happen? And what did this study learn? What did we learn from this study? Well, what we've learned is that our growing brains are very, well, they're very susceptible to stressors. And those first few years of life are critical where, you know, we know that kids, it's normal for a child to fall and hit their head while playing or something. That's part of childhood as far as I'm concerned. But that impact on a child typically is less than that from these adverse child effects, adverse events, like like separation of parents, one parent being incarcerated, being verbally abused, um, sexually abused, someone who's not stable in the family, incarceration in the family. There's so many of these events that are quite common in society. And down, you know, downstream, we're seeing symptoms as a result of that. And that's increased risk behaviors in kids. We're seeing ADHD in, in kids. Um, and other adverse childhood experiences. So it's it's a really important topic that it's uncomfortable, but we have to look deep and look within and see what we can do as, you know, as adults, parents, grandparents, whatever individuals to do better and um, let's improve the next generation. Exactly. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, oh, you know, like especially maybe um, parents who aren't getting along, for example, they might have a two year old or if there's been infidelity or if there's been or if there's substance use and abuse, you know, the parents will say, oh, they're only two. They don't know. But they oh, are they actually know. experiencing that uh, a, yeah. an ace. And, and that actually leads to or increases the risk of depression, asthma, cancer and diabetes um, yeah. in later down the road. So there was an interesting study, and I don't know if we have too much time left, but um, study that was done recently. Um, and I'm just trying to think. I'm blanking on where um, this was. It was it was presented. I know at the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience, um, and I'm just trying to think. I can't think of what university it was at. But they actually showed that um, you know the stress alone and stress with combined with traumatic brain injury produced some noteworthy results. And that basically what they're saying is that the stress caused, you know, just as much uh, issue on the brain as traumatic brain injury, if not more. Yeah, exactly. I think it was more. Yeah. So that's early childhood stress and basically sets you up for basically being like glue to bad things. Like someone who had a, a good childhood with minimal um, scores on the A score, they could go through the same experience as somebody who, let's say, scored four or higher on the A score, which is significant, and their outcomes are very different. So the early childhood experiences cannot be ignored from from pregnancy to even a toddler. Toddlers remember, I remember from age two, I remember things, and even things you don't remember, it's buried in your subconscious mind. Your body keeps school. It remembers. So it all matters. It really does. And, and, yeah, and kids absorb this, and they, they sense this, and it, you know, it excites their uh, vestibular system. But uh, I did want to mention that this work was done out of Ohio State's Chronic Brain Injury Institute, and they the authors were quite surprised by these findings. So keeping stress down, especially for your children, will help them later in life. Dr. Mitchell, cannot thank you enough. Um, thank you so much for being on the program, holisticwellnessstrategies.com. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Mitchell, thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.